All right. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, as Jason said, my name is Josh. Uh, we met, Jason and I met, I think the fall of 1999 when we were both omniscient college students who had all of life and all of the world figured out. And uh, it's been a joy to be friends with him and with Jody uh, over that time. And it is a privilege to be here with you today. This is beautiful um, because I remember I began praying for Gospel Community Church before this church was ever planned. Before ever started, I remember sitting uh, in Firehouse Barbecue in Richmond, Indiana. So it's a very glamorous life that we live. Sitting in Firehouse Barbecue, Richmond, Indiana, and Jason slides his his prospectus, kind of outlining all of his grand plans for Gospel Community Church across the table. Um, and I look at it, and there are two things I loved about it. One was. This is true to the scriptures. This is true to the gospel. The gospel just bleeds through everything I'm seeing here. Uh, and two was that it was true to who I knew Jason to be. And it was his personality and his desire to see the gospel be central, come out in everything. But for me, much of the last few years has simply been praying for you guys from afar. And so it's a joy uh, to have the opportunity to be here with you guys today um, as Jason said, we have a number of different stories uh, that I could share, and I've got the mic right now, but in order to avoid embarrassment and incrimination, I'm going to leave those in the past. But I will say that it's been a joy. I had the opportunity to stand uh, in Jason and Jody's wedding 16 years ago to see this couple, to see their love for each other, their love for Jesus, to hear about their love for you as the people of God and to experience their love for me. So it's a joy to be with you guys. A uh, little about me by way of introduction. I have an amazing wife, Tracy. Uh, we have, um, and, and I do believe this is empirically verifiable, we have the three cutest kids on the planet. I know there's a lot of cute kids here, but like, I love mine. Owen is seven, uh, Marilyn is five, Josiah uh, is three. And both my wife and I are from different places in the country. So I am originally from Western New York. My wife is originally from Birmingham, Alabama. Now most of her family lives in Orlando, Florida. So we travel a lot to see family. Like we spend ungodly amounts of time in our Toyota Sienna and especially over the holidays. So I think between Thanksgiving and New Year's this past year, we put over 4,000 miles on our minivan. And if you've traveled with young kids, you know that there is one question that is the bane of your existence that comes up over and over and over again, like fingernails on the chalkboard, this recurring haunting question between food being thrown around the minivan, between weeping and gnashing of teeth, this one question over and over again, are we there yet? Or it's derivative, how much longer? Are we there yet? How much longer? Because it's hard to wait, isn't it? It's hard to wait, especially when you're a young kid confined to a car seat and you can't move. It's hard to wait. But I actually think there's something analogous that happens to us as followers of Jesus. Because as followers of Jesus, the Christian life is one of waiting. Like, if you just look at the scriptures, we live in the time between the times. The time between the time when Jesus arose and, and ascended to the right hand of the Father and the time when he comes again. And as Christians, a lot of times we know something big happened back there 2,000 years ago. And we know something big's going to happen when Jesus returns. But often we don't know what to do in the meantime. 
And so for some of us, what this means is that we just run around frenetically from one thing to the next because the world seems so messed up and it seems like we want to do something to make it better. But the truth is that we're kind of aimless in the way that we do that. And so we jump from cause to cause. We jump from hashtag to hashtag. But if we're honest, all of our frenetic activity masks the fact that we don't really know what we're supposed to be doing with this life that God has given us. And that can be true for individuals. That can also be true for a church. We desperately want our lives to count for something. But if we're honest, sometimes we don't even know what that is. So eventually what tends to happen is we burn out. We withdraw. We give up trying to change the world. And we settle for a nice, safe, comfortable, middle-class existence. Maybe some of you in this room are there right now, and for some of you, that's coming for you. And that's why I want to look at this passage today. Because in this passage, Jesus tells us what to do. He tells us how to live as we wait for his return. If you want to know what God is doing in the world today, this is what he is doing. He is carrying out his global mission If you want to know how God calls us as followers of Jesus to live as we wait for his return, it is this. He calls us to join in his global mission. If you want to know God's will for your life, it is this. He is inviting you into his global mission. If you as a church want to know what Jesus wants for Gospel Community Church, it is this. He wants you to join his mission of proclaiming his gospel in Troy and throughout Miami County and in every corner of the earth to people of every tribe and tongue and nation. So today we're going to look at this key passage from the life of Jesus where he tells his followers what to do until he returns. And we're going to see three vital truths about God's mission in this passage and the mission that he calls us into it. And my hope as we look at these three truths, I have two hopes for this time. My first hope is that we'll all be recentered, that we'll be reminded of what God has for us, what he is welcoming us into. Because as followers of Jesus, it is so easy to become distracted. It is so easy to get off course. And so my hope is first that God would use this to recenter our lives on his purposes in the world. And my second is just to encourage you. I hope that you come away from this encouraged as you seek to live out the gospel, as you seek to honor Jesus in your personal life and in your family life and in your vocational life and in your life together as a church, as you seek to sow gospel seed and to nourish gospel fruit and to harvest gospel workers, my hope is that you come away with greater confidence and greater joy and greater awe at the fact that God includes us in his mission of what he's doing in the world. So three things, three truths about this mission that God is doing in the world and that he calls us into. Here they are really simply. One, God's word promises his mission. Two, God's people proclaim his mission. And three, God's spirit empowers his mission. God's word promises his mission, God's people proclaim his mission, and God's spirit empowers his mission. First, God's word promises his mission. So Luke 24, here's what's happening in this passage. Jesus has died, he has risen from the dead, he's appeared to the disciples, and their minds are blown. 
And if you see here, they're actually pretty confused, right? They think we've seen a ghost. They think they're hallucinating. They were not expecting their Messiah to die. And they definitely weren't expecting their Messiah to rise from the dead because they knew just as well as we do that dead men don't rise from the dead. And yet here he is. He is standing in front of them. This guy, they saw him nailed to a cross. They saw him buried in the ground. And now the guy is standing in front of them and he says, what do you guys got to eat? And they give him a piece of fish and he eats it. The guy who used to be dead just ate a piece of fish right in front of them. And they are dumbfounded. And they are shocked. And their minds are swirling. And their heads are ready to explode. And they can't believe this is actually happening. And then Jesus says this, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. He's like, guys, stop freaking out. I told you this would happen. And I didn't just tell you this would happen. The scriptures told you this would happen. The scriptures told you that the Messiah would die and that he would rise again and that his kingdom would extend to the ends of the earth beginning from Jerusalem. The law of Moses told you this would happen. The prophets told you this would happen. The Psalms told you this would happen. The entire corpus of the Hebrew scriptures told you this would happen. I know Pastor Jason is preaching through Genesis right now. The book of Genesis is all about Jesus. It is looking forward to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All these stories point to Jesus. My kids, um, there are a number of Bible stories that they really love. I think maybe their favorite is Genesis 3, like the fall of humanity. So Genesis 3, just as as a refresher, Adam and Eve believe the snake and the world is plunged into death and destruction. Like my kids love that. I I don't know what that says about my kids. I don't know what that says about my parenting, but my kids absolutely love that. But even in the middle of that story in Genesis 3, as we as human beings are turning our backs on God and destroying God's world that he created and trying to be our own gods, God gives this beautiful promise. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Every time we talk about it, my living room basically turns into a mosh pit. My kids start jumping up and down singing this song about Jesus crushed Satan's head. And I I had to step in the other day when when they tried to act it out. And uh, my daughter tried to stomp on her brother's head. So they get a little carried away. But that's explosive joy over this promise. And you and I, When we read something like that, we should have that kind of explosive joy as well. We should rejoice. That should resonate with something deeply inside of us. We live in such a broken world, and we long for it to be made right. Let me ask you, don't you long for that? Don't you long for the day when sin and death are defeated and God makes all things new? Just this past week, I prayed with a family in our church who recently buried their five-week-old son. His death was completely unexpected, completely life-shattering, and they are in unspeakable pain right now. 
And I can't give them any easy answers, and I can't say anything to magically make their pain go away. I'm simply crying out for God to be near to them and for Jesus to come quickly and to make all things new. That's what we long for. That's what we hunger for. We long for a world where no parent ever has to bury their baby, where no child is ever sold into a trafficking ring, where we never watch Alzheimer's slowly take away the people that we love. No more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more depression, no more divorce, no more abuse, no more racism, no more injustice. Because if I'm honest, I'm so tired of the brokenness of the world. And I'm so tired of the brokenness of my own heart. And that's the cry of our souls, and that is the cry of humanity throughout history. God, the world is so broken, and God, we are so broken. So come and make it right. Come and set us free. The Bible is the story of how God is doing that. Jesus says the scriptures. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, the whole thing. It is the story of humanity's longing for me. And he says, it is my promise of how I'm going to make it right again. And it's not just a promise for one nation or for one ethnic group. It is my promise to bring blessing and salvation to people, as Revelation 5 says, of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what the Hebrew scriptures promised. And we don't have time to read the whole Old Testament here today, but I want to touch down in a few key places. So we're going to have these on the screens. You might just want to jot the references down or just look over them as we read through them. So a few key places. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And this is the key phrase. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm not just blessing you for you, Abraham. I am blessing you so that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Isaiah chapter 2, 1,500 years after Abraham, uh, 700 years before Jesus. Listen to this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And this is a key phrase. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. End of Isaiah. Isaiah 52, just reading verse 15, says that the Messiah will sprinkle many nations. He will cleanse many nations. And how will he do it? Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, God's plan throughout the ages 
His plan laid out in the Hebrew scriptures is to bless all the families of the earth in a descendant of Abraham who will die in the place of sinners, who will cleanse us from our sins, who will be bruised by the serpent, who will taste the sting of death, but in the process, who will crush the serpent's head, who will set us free from sin and death and hell and shame and condemnation, and one day who will make all things new. And his plan is to send the good news of that deliverance to the ends of the earth through his people. I don't know if you're with me on this, but I often find myself wondering, Jesus, why didn't you just make it all new? When you rose from the dead, I mean, he defeated sin and death and hell. Why is the world still so broken? It's because his work isn't finished. This is where you and I come in. See, God's word promises his mission, but also God's people proclaim his mission. God's people proclaim his mission. Verse 47, look at it again. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. See, if Jesus had just ended it all after he rose from the dead, then the message of salvation never would have gone to the nations and you and I wouldn't be sitting here today. Jesus says, I'm going to make all things new. But first, he says, Matthew 24, first, he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's what God is driving his mission toward. That's what God is doing in the world, proclaiming his gospel among all nations. That is the final piece of the mission that God is carrying out in the world before Jesus returns. And that's what he calls us into. Now, it's really important to pay attention to the words here. Verse 47, it says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed. In other words, it'll be spoken. It means that we as the people of God will open our mouths and share this good news. As Christians, we believe that the gospel changes everything. Gospel community church exists because you believe that the gospel has changed you. And not just you, but that it has the power to change your friends and your neighbors and your family members and your town and your county and your state and your nation and your world. The word gospel literally means good news. And news is something that's proclaimed. News is something that we speak with our mouths. In the ancient world, the word gospel was a technical word. It was used for life-changing, history-changing, world-changing good news. So, I'm a history nerd, little little history lesson here. 490 BC, the Persians uh, are trying to invade Greece. And the Greeks fight them back at the Battle of Marathon. And then you, you may remember this story. The Greeks triumph, and they send this guy named Phidippides, which I think is his name. I might be butchering it. But they send this guy, this messenger, to run 26 miles to Athens to proclaim the good news. And it's fascinating. If you read the ancient histories, the word that's used there for what he does is he evangelizes. He proclaims the gospel. He proclaims the good news. Friends, that's what a gospel is. It is an announcement that something world-changing has happened. That the enemy has been defeated. That war is over. That we've been set free. And now this changes everything. That's what we proclaim as followers of Jesus. The king has come. He has defeated the enemy. He has liberated us. And this changes everything. 
I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I'm afraid to open my mouth and to speak the gospel. Maybe we don't want to be seen as intolerant or or narrow-minded or backwards or, or we just don't like the awkwardness of it. But I want you to see that proclaiming the gospel is not some backwards form of bigotry. It is a message of love and liberation. It is something that sets the captives free. Listen to this quote from Penn Jillette. So if you don't know who Penn Jillette is, he's a famous magician, uh, not musician, but magician, like the hats, the rabbits, the wands, the sawing people in half, all that kind of stuff. So he's a magician. He's also an outspoken atheist. I've actually heard uh, Penn Jillette say that he doesn't let Christians in his home because he doesn't want them influencing his kids. Listen to what he says. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize or to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about this? Now remember, guys, that's not a Christian saying this. This is someone who rejects Christianity, who thinks it's a lie, who actually thinks it's evil. And yet he says, if you really believe that this is true, then the only loving thing to do is to tell people about it, even if it's socially awkward. And I don't say that to guilt you. I don't say that to try to browbeat you or to shame you. But I say that because we have something that is so beautiful, that has changed us, and that has the opportunity to give life to the world. Because here's the truth, friends. Everyone evangelizes. Everyone has some version of good news. Everyone believes in some kind of the gospel. Everyone has something that lights the fuse of joy in their lives and that they naturally erupt with and they want to share with others. That's why you don't just go to that concert or eat that meal. You got to Instagram it. That's why when your kids do something funny, you post it on Facebook. Because you talk about the things that you love. You talk about the things that are important to you. Whatever it is, your favorite sports team, your favorite band, your favorite TV show, your family, your new workout routine, whatever it is, this is why we proclaim the gospel. This is why we talk about Jesus because he brings joy and love and life and he changes everything. So we open our mouths to share the good news because God is a speaking God. Think about this. And if you guys are aware, you're going through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. How does God create? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth. In Genesis 1-3, what happens? And God spoke. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be mountains, and there were mountains. And God said, let there be oceans, and there were oceans. And God said, let there be killer whales, and there were killer whales. And God said, let there be kangaroos, and there were kangaroos. And God said, let there be galaxies, and there were galaxies. And God said, let there be subatomic particles, and there were subatomic particles. God spoke, and it happened. He creates through his word, and God recreates through his word. That's why God sends his word into the world. John 1, 14, and the word... By which all things were created, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God makes all things by his word. 
And God makes all things new by his word. So when God sends us out to make all things new, he doesn't send us out with gimmicks and strategies. He sends us out with his word. He sends us out with good news. And I, I just want to encourage you here as a church that has begun well, keep trusting in the power of God's word. Keep trusting that the gospel is the power of God for salvation because one of the things I have seen in churches, especially new churches, is that sometimes there, there's a period of time where the gospel is fresh and things are exciting, but then there's a period of time where you get tempted to veer away from confidence in the gospel. And we think we need to improve on the old, old story. And we need something cooler and newer and shinier. But friends, God does not need us to improve on what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that old, old story is the way that God is making all things new. Look at specifically what we proclaim. Verse, verse 47, Jesus says, you will proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now the word repentance is maybe the most misunderstood word in the entire Bible. Because here's what most people think of when they think of repentance. Most people, when they think of repentance, they think of penance. Here's what I mean. Penance says, I've done something bad, now I need to do something good to make up for it. And that's the default way that we all live. We all are trying to justify ourselves. Whether you are religious or not, your default setting is a setting of penance. We desperately want to convince ourselves that we're okay. Not that bad of a person. I'm not perfect, but look what a good parent I am. Look how much money I give to charity. Look at all the, the good things I do. Look how religious I am. So we try to become more moral or more religious or more generous, or more socially conscious, or more fit, or more successful, or more whatever. And we paint this veneer of morality over our souls, but inside our hearts are still dead. That's penance. But repentance? Repentance is so much deeper. Repentance is so much more liberating. Repentance is a complete change of mind. It's a whole new way of seeing ourselves and God and the world around us. It means that we turn from our attempts to rule the world and we embrace Jesus as king. It means that we no longer see ourselves as the center of the universe, but now we see Jesus as the center of the universe. It means that we stop trying to be our own gods and we trust God to be God. It means that we stop trying to justify ourselves by our pathetic attempts at self-righteousness and we trust the death and the resurrection of Jesus to make us right with God. We trust the fact that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We turn and we receive what he offers. And it says that he offers the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to hear this today. Jesus offers full forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ does not do halfway forgiveness. And some of us here today, maybe you're still trying to justify yourself. Maybe there's that thing that happened way back there, the thing that every time you think about it, you get, you get this sick feeling in the pit of your stomach, and you think, I don't know if God can really forgive me for that. I don't know if I can really be right with God. i got to do something to make up with that. And you're still trying to prove yourself to God 
or to your parents or to your spouse or maybe just to yourself. And I want you to know that Jesus died for all of your sins. The ones from your distant past and the ones from this morning. The ones you feel comfortable confessing in your community group and the ones that you try to hide from everyone, including yourself. You don't have to prove yourself to God because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. That is life-changing news. That's the kind of news that changes everything. And Jesus says that good news is going to be proclaimed in all nations, starting from Jerusalem. He says this is not just good news for one ethnic group. So Jesus was a Jewish man. He was a Jewish Messiah, but his salvation is not just for the Jews. It is for people of every tribe and tongue and nation. Sometimes when we talk about God's global mission, we forget the fact that we don't just go to the nations. We are the nations. Like unless you're Jewish here today, You and I are the nations, and we have all been brought into God's family, and now he sends us out to welcome others into his family. That's the impulse for mission. Not that we're insiders and other people are outsiders. The motivation for mission is the fact that we were all outsiders, and God brought us in, and he gave us a seat at the table. We were all hopelessly alienated from God, and he brought us into his family. He brought us into his kingdom through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and now he sends us out to welcome other people in. That's what God is doing in the world. I love the fact that you guys have the map of the world up there, that you have your eyes on your community, but you also have your eyes on the world. Because sometimes, as American Christians, we miss what God is doing around the world. But the fact is that if you look at Christianity around the world, you will find that Christianity is growing fastest, and it is most vibrant in countries that are not Western countries. And frankly, the the healthiest churches, the strongest churches in the world are not quote-unquote white churches. Christianity is growing fastest among non-white people in the global south and the east. It is spreading like wildfire in places like Iran and China and all throughout the African continent. It is growing throughout the world. And, And we're just a small minority of what God's doing in the world. And yet I want us to realize that we as Christians in America have a highly privileged position. And even though we're a minority, we have great blessing and great privilege to steward for what God is doing in the world. Let me just give you one example. Do you realize that if you speak English, you have an outlandish privilege compared to much of the rest of the world? Now that is true, not just from an economic standpoint, but it's also true from the standpoint of access to the gospel. There are over 450 translations of the Bible in English. I have not counted them all. That's according to Wikipedia, so you know it's got to be true. Um, But there are like 450 translations of the Bible in English. You can download them to your phone as you're sitting right here. We have more podcasts and more books and more blogs and more Bible translations and more biblical needlepoint than we know what to do with in the English-speaking world. 2010, I had the opportunity to train a group of pastors in a closed country in Southeast Asia. This is is a country where we had to avoid the police, where we had to avoid the government. 
Um, I actually preached at a house church in this country, and they picked us up at our hotel, and they drove us around for an hour and a half under cover of night. And, and the driver pulls down this abandoned dark alley, and he says, okay, get out. I'm like, I'm like here, bro? Like, right here? And he's like, yeah, get out and go there. And there was nothing there. And then this door opens up in the side of the wall, basically, and I go inside, and there's like 60 believers in there worshiping Jesus. And I had the opportunity to preach to them that night. And, and then the, the couple weeks after that, I had the opportunity to train pastors in this country. And half the pastors that I trained were from a minority people group in this country. So these were men who were leading churches, men who had been to prison for their faith, men who had lost jobs for their faith. Some had literally had their homes burned to the ground for following Jesus. I have 450 translations of the Bible in my native tongue. Do you know how many translations of the Bible they had in their native tongue? Zero. Zero. They actually learned another language so that they could read the Bible in another language. The month that we were there, word had come out that that there was about to be released the first translation of the Bible in their language. They were ecstatic. They were overjoyed with its excitement. Do you realize what a privilege it is to have the words of God in our language? What are we doing with them? How are we using that blessing for the good of others? Are we sharing it with our neighbors? Are we sharing it with the nations or are we hoarding it for ourselves? Because the fact is that Jesus died for people in Indianapolis, where I'm from, and in Indonesia. And he offers forgiveness to people in Troy and people in Tibet. So how are we joining his mission? How are we proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins in our neighborhood and among the nations? And let me just say this about that. This is not just about going to other countries. This is not just about a stamp in your passport. This is about being faithful where God has you. And I just want to encourage you, keep your eyes open. Keep sowing gospel seed. Keep nourishing gospel fruit. Keep harvesting gospel workers because Jesus is advancing his mission through you. Friend, you do not live where you live by accident. You don't live in your neighborhood by accident. You don't go to school where you go to school by accident. You don't work where you work by accident. Jesus has strategically sent you to your job, to your family, to your neighborhood, to your school. He has intentionally placed people around you, and he wants you to invite them into his family. So keep your eyes open because it will blow your mind when you see who God chooses to save. Back in 2014, I had the opportunity to meet a man. um, We called him Q, like the letter Q. Um, And the reason we called him Q is because it wasn't safe to use his full name. Q is from a large tribe in Central Asia. So he is from what was at that point, I think still maybe is considered the largest unreached, unengaged people group in the world. So here's what that means. It means that there are 12 million people like Q people who have the same ethnic background, people who have the same language, people who have the same cultural background. And not one of those people, 12 million people, not one was a follower of Jesus. It means that if you live as part of that tribe, the odds are good that you will be born and you will live your entire life and you will die and you will never hear the gospel of Jesus. But Q came to college in the U.S., 
and he began trying to learn English. And he began practicing his English with a group of Christians who invited him over for Christmas dinner and shared the gospel with him. And today, Q is a missionary in his home country taking the gospel to people who have never heard. And those people who introduced Q to Jesus didn't do anything heroic. They didn't travel across the world. They didn't preach to a stadium full of people. They welcomed a lonely student into their homes and they practiced English with him and they opened their mouths and shared the good news of Jesus. And now Jesus is being worshipped by a group of people who previously had never heard of him. Friends, just be faithful. Be faithful with the opportunities where you are and keep your eyes open for more opportunities. Jesus says, you are my witnesses. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Now that word witnesses, vitally important. Jesus is saying to his first followers, you will proclaim something that you have witnessed, something that you have seen with your eyes. You will proclaim something that happened in history. They saw him killed. They saw him buried. They were standing in front of him, looking at him as he breathed his last breath. And now he's standing in front of them and they're touching him and they're eating breakfast with him. This is one of the things that makes Christianity utterly unique among all the religions in the world. It is based squarely on eyewitness testimony. It is based squarely on something that actually happened at a historical time in a historical place. This is the core reality of Christianity. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. And without that, there is no Christianity. Now, maybe you got questions about that today. Like, I don't want to assume that all of us in this room believe that. And so maybe you're wrestling with questions. You've got objections. You've got doubts about Christianity. Did, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And what's so cool here, if you pay attention to this, is that many of Jesus' early followers doubted too. They're like, this can't be true. It must be a ghost. It must be a hallucination. And so if you've got questions about that, explore those questions. Talk to Pastor Jason or one of the elders here. Talk to me. We would love to explore that with you. And ultimately, you need to decide for yourself whether you believe this is true. But this is not a peripheral issue. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is utterly ridiculous. And I would go so far as to say it is evil. But if it's actually true, if these witnesses are actually telling the truth, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then that changes everything. As followers of Jesus, that's what we base our lives on. That's what we proclaim to the world. We proclaim what they witnessed with their own eyes because we believe that it changes everything. God's word promises his mission. God's people proclaim his mission. Finally, all of that is useless without the final component of this mission. God's spirit empowers his mission. God's spirit empowers his mission. Verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus says, don't try to do this without me. Don't try to do this without my presence and my power. At this point, there's like 120 followers of Jesus. Most of them are poor, uneducated. If you read the Gospels, they're always messing it up, always putting their foot in their mouth, not the sharpest knives in the drawer. And they follow this guy who died and rose again, who claims to be the king of the universe. And he says, I want you to go out and tell all the world that I'm the king of the universe. And he says this, I'm going to send you out. 
I'm going to send you out to, to change the world and to change history, to proclaim this good news among all nations, but you can't do it. You can't accomplish this mission on your own. So wait, he says, until you are clothed with power from on high. Because here's the most important thing you need to understand about God's mission. God's mission is God's mission. It is God's mission. Now, he calls us to be a part of it. He welcomes us into it. But he is the one who accomplishes it. God's mission is perfectly designed to fail if God doesn't show up. Friends, seeking to see the gospel take root in your community and go to the ends of the earth, that is a mission that is perfectly designed to fail if God doesn't show up. So for some of us, that freaks us out. And and here's what we do then. We settle for less than God's mission. Do you know what terrifies me as a pastor? The thing that keeps me up at night is not the fear of failure. The thing that keeps me up at night is the fact that we could, we could succeed at good things that are not God things. Because I've seen it. And I'll lay odds that you have too. You can build a big church. You can do good religious things. And you can do it merely by human means. You connect with the right people. Get your branding just right. You map out a killer strategic plan. You got a cool gimmick to get people in the door. And you succeed at doing something that would have worked with or without the power and presence of God. And for me personally, I don't want to waste my life doing something like that. I want to be a part of something that can only be explained by power from on high. That's what God is inviting us into. That's what he's inviting me into. That's what he's inviting you into. That's what he is inviting gospel community church into. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like in your life. If I'm honest, I don't even have any idea of what it's going to look like in my life. But here's what's so cool. These earliest followers of Jesus in Luke 24, they didn't know either. Jesus didn't lay out some master strategic plan. He told them to wait for the Spirit. Wait for power from on high. So that's what they did. They waited and they prayed. And a few weeks later, they're all gathered together praying in someone's apartment. And the Spirit of God fell on them and filled them with holy fire. And he sent them out to proclaim the gospel. And in the process, he turned the world upside down. And that same spirit that fell on them and clothed them with holy fire is the same spirit that lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus. So I don't have all the specifics about what exactly this is going to look like for you or for me. But I just want to encourage you. Let's be a people who pray. Let's pray that God would clothe us with power from on high. Just encourage you this week, in your community group, pray for wisdom and power to be God's witnesses. In your families, with your spouse, with your kids, in your personal time with the Lord, pray that Jesus would make his name great through you in Troy and in Miami County and in every corner of the earth. Pray for holy fire. Pray for power from on high. Pray that God would send us out to proclaim his gospel to all nations in the power of the spirit that lives within us. Because here's the thing you'll see. If you read the Bible, if you read the history of the church, the thing that you'll find is that God isn't looking for the smartest people. He's not looking for the most successful people or the most well-connected people or the wealthiest people. God is looking for hungry people. 
God is looking for people for whom nothing less than the power and presence of God will do. Who cry out, God, clothe us with power from on high. Fill us with holy fire. Make your name great. Do it again, Lord. Do it again and do it through us. So I want to pray for you in that vein now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in and of ourselves, we are utterly helpless. We were utterly helpless to give ourselves life. We're utterly helpless. If you don't give us the next breath in our lungs, we're utterly helpless. If you don't make our hearts continue to beat, we're helpless. We were helpless to save ourselves. But you gave your son to do what we could not do, to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, to rise again, to reconcile us to you and to conquer sin and death and to send your spirit within us. And God, we are utterly helpless to do anything of any lasting value in your kingdom, in your church, as we seek to advance your gospel. And we need your help. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, I pray that you would clothe them with power from on high. I pray that you would fill them with holy fire. I pray that you would make them hungry, that you would make them so hungry for you that nothing less than the power and the presence of Jesus can satisfy them. And I pray then that you would fill them. I pray that you would pour out your spirit and pour out your gospel through them. That through them you would be planting the seed of the gospel all over Troy, all over this county, all over this state, this nation, and to the ends of the earth for the glory of your name. We are utterly dependent on you. And yet it's your mission. And we know that you will accomplish it. And so I pray for Gospel Community Church that you would continue to encourage them, sustain them, let them be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that their labor is not in vain in the Lord. We pray it in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.